Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Two questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. On this edition of Restoring the Soul, we're taking a trip in the Wayback Machine to feature a conversation with Michael and Rabbi Evan Moffick. In light of the coronavirus pandemic and how difficult this year has been for so many, we thought it'd be nice to offer a look at the ancient Jewish happiness prayer that helps to open up opportunities for gratitude and joy. Respected as a Jewish thought leader, both in the Chicago area and nationally, Rabbi Moffick is the author of four best-selling books, He's regularly featured as part of the Religion Panel on Fox and Friends and on CNN, and his articles appear in Huffington Post. Now, the Chicago Tribune described Evan as a brilliant antidote to all that divides us. He constructs bridges where others drive wedges. And the rabbi we'd love to call our own, humble, wise, and good beyond words. Now, finally, I've been encouraging you to share a review of Restoring the Soul on Apple Podcasts. And in return, we'd randomly select a review and award the author of that review with a copy of Susie Larson's latest book, Fully Alive. Well, we received a number of wonderful posts, and I'm happy to say that Jimmy in NYC, if you're listening today, feel free to drop us an email at info at restoringthesoul.com with your address, and we'll be happy to send you a free copy of Fully Alive by Susie Larson. Thank you, and congratulations. Now, without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Rabbi Evan Moffick, thank you for finally we get to sit together. Uh, thanks for taking time with me. Thank you. It's it's a joy and an honor to be here. We have a mutual friend, uh, Ian, who I was introduced to your work and your writing through him. And today I'm excited to be able to talk with you about your book, The Happiness Prayer, Ancient Jewish Wisdom, for the best way to live today. Um, but first of all, just talk a little bit about who you are and, and what you do there in Illinois. Well, I am a rabbi of a synagogue in, in suburban Illinois uh, and uh, outside of Chicago. And I've been here at my current congregation. This is my 10th year. It's about a 500 family congregation. So it's, uh, it's a lot of work it's, uh, and a lot of teaching. I do a lot of teaching. I do a lot of pastoral care. I do a lot of life cycle events, weddings, funerals, baby namings, uh, and I'm a husband and a father of two two young girls, nine and eleven, and uh, I'm also a writer. And it's it's been it all kind of comes together that the writing draws from my experience as a rabbi, uh, and the writing enriches my approach as a rabbi, and it's uh, I I feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world to get to do what I love. And so when you wrote The Happiness Prayer, you were going through a journey yourself that this book emerged from. You were struggling with your own faith and your vocation and your very calling to be a rabbi. Can you talk a little about that? Oh, yeah. I, I think it was a time when I wasn't sure I was I was qualified or able to really 
be a source of strength and and perspective and faith for people because I was doubting myself. I was wondering, could I really help people through difficult moments if I hadn't experienced those myself? Could I really serve as a representative of God and of the Jewish people in a time when I was doubting my own sense of commitment? Um, who was I? I kind of was saying, who was I at 30 years old to be counseling people in their 60s and 70s and, and telling them how to get through difficult moments if I had never gone through them myself? And so I really felt I felt challenged. And I wanted I've always been someone who wants to do a good job. I want to succeed. I'm a three on the Enneagram. I'm driven. <laughs> uh, and and then I felt like, but I'm am I really succeeding? Am I doing am I doing this well? And that's where that the happiness prayer and what I discovered in positive psychology and and kind of marrying the two, I began to look at Judaism and faith in a different way, and it really awoken me, uh, awakened me, and I I found deep strength in that prayer. Uh, I kind of knew what prayer was all about for the first time. I'd always I'd always participated in prayer, but I I think when I when I went through those difficult times, it really made it real really made it powerful. And I'm grateful for that experience now. Yeah. And so one of the things I love about the Happiness Prayer book is that you take this ancient text and you are obviously a, a person that reads widely and deeply. So you take uh, modern psychology, especially the positive psychology movement that Martin Seligman launched. Uh, you take some business principles. Mike Hyatt is quoted in the book, and I'm a big fan of his. But oh. you, you you blend together so many different elements to really um, kind of say, here's a way of living that's not about being legalistic or uh, dogmatic, but here's this pathway that will result in joy. Yeah. I'm always looking for wisdom. I think that is and it doesn't matter where, where it comes from. There's another teaching, and this is from a, a book in Judaism. It's actually part of the Talmud called Pirkei Avot, which means sayings of the fathers, sayings of the ancestors. And it's 2,000 years old, and I've been wanting to write a book on Pirkei Avot called The Greatest Self-Help Book Ever Written because it's an amazing book, and it's underappreciated. And there's a teaching in Pirkei Avot that says, who is wise? And the answer, one who learns from all people. And so I'm always trying to learn from everybody. It could be a business leader that's quoted in Entrepreneur Magazine, uh, and it could be you know the Dalai Lama, and it could be uh, Rabbi Akiba from 2,000 years ago. There's so much wisdom if we look and if we try to appreciate and are open to different experiences. And that's always been a part of, 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 of how I look at the world. Um, and, and I think the ancient rabbis who wrote the Happiness Prayer, I think they did as well. I think they were – there's another famous teaching in the Talmud where the, uh, a student finds his rabbi, his, his sort of teacher in the Roman baths. And he says, Rabbi, you know, we're opposed to the Romans. What are you doing in the Roman baths? He said, well, the Romans know a lot about hygiene and they know about <laughs> and so we should learn from them. And so it was a truly that, – that's, that's a – you know, we, we, we have our own practices but we can also learn from the surrounding culture and I think that's a part of – of Judaism and the way I, I practice and live it. Wow. That that goes right back to your forthcoming book about anti-Semitism, that if, if we can't open ourselves to the experience and perspective of another and that they actually have something to teach us, uh, then hatred or some kind of uh, separateness or, or dualism will, will set in. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the great dangers of the world is that when we believe we have absolute truth and we're willing to enforce that truth on others through force that creates there's, there's nothing wrong with having disagreements and there's actually nothing wrong with really having a sense of absolute truth but if you try to enforce your view on the of the world on somebody else and dehumanize anyone who disagrees with you that creates tension and that's that 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 happens it's a temptation within every religion um, but part of our challenge as human beings and as specifically as religious leaders is to moderate that. Yeah, one might say that uh, eating at the tree of knowledge is all about I've got the right knowledge. I've got the right opinion and therefore you're wrong and I have to oppose you. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think that's right. I mean, that's why pride is such a sin in Christianity. And, and you know, Moses in the Torah is described as the most humble man on earth. So to be true people of faith, we need humility. You know, if, if we knew everything about God, then then why would we need faith? We'd know everything. So we have to have a sense of humility if we truly want to be people of faith. Uh, I love that. So let's talk a little bit about the origin of the happiness prayer, because it's not just a book idea that you got and invented this um, to write a prayer, but it's an ancient text from the rabbis, uh, and it's the Elu Devarim. Am I saying that correct or near correct? That pronunciation was perfect. Well, then so, let, me, yeah. let me say it again, but a drum roll this time. Elu, <laughs> Elu Devarim. Yes. Okay. Uh, it literally means, Elu means these are, and then Devarim Divarim is a very flexible Hebrew word. So Hebrew, biblical Hebrew only has about one quarter of the number of words that modern English does. So words had different meanings depending on the context. Divarim means things. It also means words, and it means teachings. So in a sense, Elu Divarim means these are the teachings. And it's a prayer, or it's not even really a prayer, it's a text taken from the Talmud, that is turned into a prayer. But the Talmud is a compilation of rabbinic wisdom and laws that was originally oral. It was the rabbis getting together and discussing the meaning of the Torah. And then later on, somebody wrote down what they, the, the, what they discussed and what they said. And so Elu Devarim is a section from the Talmud. And at some point, maybe 1,500 years ago, we don't know the exact time frame, they said, well, these teachings are so important that we are going to make them part of our daily prayer service. And so this saying, this text, these are the, these are the things, these are the teachings, became part of our daily prayer. And so that's where it came from. And essentially, one day, I was in, uh, I was in a worship service. It was, we were praying. And it was a bat mitzvah, so that's a coming of age ceremony for boy for girl. Girls is a bat mitzvah, boys is a bar mitzvah. And this was during that period when I was struggling. And this young woman started chanting. She was singing the Elu Devarim prayer. And I was thinking, wait a minute. I'm looking for happiness. I'm looking for meaning. I'm struggling. And I'm listening to this prayer, and it just struck me as to how much wisdom was contained in it. And I said, you know, I've said this prayer hundreds and hundreds of times, thousands maybe by then, and I had never realized what it was saying. And that was kind of the beginning of this journey. Uh, and I, I started saying, well, well, let me look at either. There were 10 of them. So there were 10 principles. One of the, one of the uh, titles we played around with for the book was The Other Ten Commandments, which I liked. Um, the publisher didn't want the word commandments in the title for whatever reason. And so – the I began to look at each of these 10 teachings and, and, and asking, well, what deeper truth is it conveying? Uh, gratitude, hospitality, learning, um, accompanying people through difficult moments. And I kind of was trying to tease out the deeper lesson in each of the 10 teachings. And that's, that's, that's where the journey began. It all began in a simple worship service on a Saturday morning, listening to a 13-year-old girl sing this, this prayer. Wow. And I, and I saw something on YouTube after reading the book that was a video of a woman singing it. It really is beautiful when it's sung in Hebrew and the melody and the music. Yeah. I mean, it goes, I, I'm not a good singer, but it's and then goes through. So I'm not, I don't have the best voice, but that's, this is that traditional uh, Hebrew chanting style. Wow. Can you uh, give the English contemporary version of that? And then I'd like to just kind of walk through the different elements because uh, I love what you said about taking each of these lines or ideas that's in the prayer and you just expanded on it and looked for the deeper meaning. And it, it really felt like listening to 10 really substantive sermons about each of these topics. But um, if you can say it for our listeners in advance, that'd be great. Absolutely. So it says, 
these are the duties, these are the teachings, these are the responsibilities whose worth cannot be measured. Their award awaits us in this lifetime and in our lives in the world to come. Uh, and here they are, uh, honoring father and mother, acts of love and kindness, diligent pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, hospitality to wayfarers, visiting the sick, rejoicing with bride and groom, consoling the bereaved, praying with sincerity, making peace between human beings, and continuing the study of Torah, because study is the foundation that leads to them all. Those are the ten. Thank you for that. It sounds uh, uh, amazingly contemporary. (laughs) Those words would have been written, uh, what, uh, 300 BCE? Yeah, 2,000 years ago, probably. I mean, somewhere, somewhere, maybe 100, 200 BCE, or not BCE, uh, CE, so after the life of Jesus, during the Common Era, uh, but, but around that time. It may, it may even be earlier. I mean, it's so hard to tell because nothing was written down really until the 5th century. Um, but they certainly probably originated sometime closer to 100 CE. Yeah. So you start the book with a little bit of setup that you've talked about, but I thought it was interesting as a psychotherapist uh, that the first one is to honor your father and mother. And yeah. I think there's even something I saw online about a contemporary version of this um, that might be the one you recited, but that it was uh, adjusted in the wording because so many people are dealing with uh, abuse or parental issues that, that there's something about this that felt almost traumatizing. So talk to me about uh, the deeper meaning of honoring father and mother. That doesn't mean that you just say everything is OK when they try to control you or manipulate you or that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that is the chapter that has probably been the most impactful to people. I had a group of pre-readers, people who were promoting the book but and who read it ahead of time, and almost to a T, they said that chapter was the most powerful for them, which I didn't expect going into it. Uh, but... I translated honor father, mother. I translated it to honor those who gave you life. Mm. Uh, and uh, so that was my just to 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 because I think that gets at the deeper meaning of the text. And to me, what it means, well, first of all, in terms of abuse, Jewish law is very clear. If your parents abused you, they no longer warrant the honor. So abuse is in its own kind of category of that. That sort of uh, uh, changes the application of the law. But let's just talk about not not necessarily abuse, but maybe people weren't the best parents or they were absent, things like that. The idea in Judaism is that you owe that life is a gift and the people who gave you life, they gave you that gift and you owe some amount of honor to the people who gave you that gift, even if they didn't really follow through after giving you the gift to begin with. So. It, to me, it's about gratitude. It's about seeing life as a gift. And gratitude, if, if, I, if someone forced me, you know, there's a great uh, Hebrew teaching that says, summarize all of the Torah to me while standing on one foot. And to me, if somebody said, summarize what you need to do to be happy while standing on one foot, I would say gratitude. Gratitude, because when we are grateful for what we have, we focus on it. We don't focus always on what we want. We focus on what we have. And when we're grateful for what we have, we're happier. It's, 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 it, it simply changes the, the mind in a way. So if we look at our parents and say, you know what? Thank you for the gift of life. That to me, is, it, it can be life changing. And I talk in, in this chapter uh, uh, about a funeral I had to conduct very difficult funeral where the mother essentially did not have any contact with her children from after when from the time they were four and six until her death when they were in their 30s and the reason was she uh, had become a heroin addict and was gone just you know lived on the streets for 20 years and then in a shelter for 10 years and they had no contact with her 
uh, and then she died and they actually spoke at her funeral and it was I mean it was very powerful and essentially what they said was they were grateful that she gave them life and that this kind of moment expressing that gratitude I talked to them a week later and expressing that gratitude gave them a sense of closure and also of self-understanding they understood but by, by, by kind of experiencing that moment, experiencing the pain, but also finding some sort of blessing in it, it gave them a sense of peace. And we're not always able to do that. But when we can find a way to express gratitude, then I think we're happier. You said in this chapter um, a line that I really thought was interesting, and that is that when we when we can honor our parents for who they are, uh, that we can actually begin to accept ourselves. And I, I see so much happening, and you probably see this in your congregation, where people not accepting themselves, being harsh on themselves, judging themselves without mercy, you know, the shooting on yourself. Uh, that self-acceptance is a big thing. But one wouldn't think that you arrive at that through actually honoring the one that gave you life. Yeah, that is hard. Because sometimes... We inherit – I'll give you an example. So my wife my wife drives me crazy sometimes because she is always early for everything. I mean we get to the airport three hours before the flight leaves. So that's the only way she's comfortable and it drives me crazy. And if, if I have to go pick up the kids, let's say I have to pick them up at 7.30, she's calling me at 7 and being like, are you there yet? And so I'm like, no, I mean I haven't even left yet. So <laughs> – but part of the reason she does that is her mom, who was an attorney and, and a very busy, uh, was always late to things. And and so she kind of overcompensated. And to me, in a way, she kind of – but she and her mom have the close – have an extraordinarily close relationship. But I think understanding where her mom was coming from helped her understand what was important to her and this is who she is. So – in some ways, when we accept our parents, we can give ourselves a little greater flexibility. We, we, we just accept them for who they are and we, we accept ourselves for who we are. You know, she's a, she knows she knows that she's being irrational by being early for everything. She knows that. And I know that. But I th- think part of the reason she can know that and laugh at it is because she has accepted her mom for who she is. And so I think when we, in a sense, stop judging our parents – that might be a way to, to, to begin to stop judging ourselves um, because I think we, we're connected to our parents in, in a lot of unconscious ways. And, um, and it's, it's not easy. It's not easy because sometimes if we don't like parts of ourselves, we're going to find parts of our parents not to like either. So in a way, in some ways, it, it, it's almost like a little hack that if you can forgive your parents, it, it may make it easier to forgive yourself. You know, that's fascinating that you said that because I think that um, so many of these of the 10 elements of the prayer are woven together. And I know that forgiveness is not a specific one, but you do unpack that a little bit. You also mentioned and the uh, the wise listener will will probably determine that uh, this idea of honoring your father and mother and the happiness prayer is also the only one of the 10 commandments that's woven into this. In that, yes. in that direct sense, and that that commandment says that if you do this, it will go well with you, that there's a fruit to it, there's a blessing. That's right. It's the only one of the Ten Commandments that has a reward attached to it, right? You shall, yeah, it will go well with you. You will dwell on the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You know, that's in Exodus. And in all the other commandments, it just says, do this, do this, do this. But honoring father and mother, there's actually a reward attached, uh, and which is remarkable, uh, and I do think there is a there is a kind of cosmic reward uh, when we honor our father and mother. Um, of course, that's not the reason we should do it. But you know, I've conducted probably 500 funerals, give or take, and I do I see situations in which there's no peace between parents and children, and I've seen situations where there's a sense of peace and they've accepted each other. They may not be best friends. But there is a sense of just greater happiness when you can 
reach some kind of reconciliation and acceptance, kind of like Jacob and Esau in the Bible. I mean, they're brothers, not parents, but they don't speak for 20 years. Then they encounter one another again and they accept each other. They again, they go their separate ways. They're not best friends, but they reconcile. And I think that is a that's a gift if we can achieve that in our lives. Yeah, and that was a, a major reconciliation, even by today's standards, of yeah. s- stealing a birthright and deceiving and lying to your dad. And, um, you know, I, I'm just struck again as we're talking about these, that these are not pithy little individual optimistic thoughts that if you do these, then God's going to somehow bless you or reward you. But rather, these are things that represent a life well lived, and these are things that if you do these, the consequences are going to generate goodness and happiness. Yeah. Yeah. It's not happiness. That That's one of the major differences between happiness and pleasure. Pleasure, nothing wrong with pleasure. Getting a massage, having a great meal. We can all think about certain things that, that are pleasurable. And that's wonderful. That's important. But that's not happiness. Happiness is a long lasting satisfaction. It's a sense of looking back on our life and knowing that it's been well lived. And that kind of happiness often involves struggle and suffering. That's part of the journey. And so sometimes we may not see the immediate fruits of our efforts. Sometimes when when we seek reconciliation, we may be rebuffed. It may make things worse temporarily. But these are long-term goals, and that's why that that's why this prayer still has power. That's why for two thousand well, for two thousand years we've been saying it because there's some time-tested wisdom in here. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think our religious traditions last is because they really do contain wisdom that affirms life, and and that's why to me that this prayer is so powerful because it's been road-tested for a good two thousand years. So the next one in the prayer is this idea of kindness. And one might say, well, you know, everybody knows why you should be kind. But it strikes me that one of the things we most desperately need in our world today is kindness. Talk about and unpack that one. That's my favorite chapter. You know, that's the one I'm always working on. Um, Because, yes, we know we should be kinder. And we teach our children manners and Hopefully we teach them to be kind, but we just look at the world around us. Look at politics. Look at the way people treat each other. And we know that they're, that we're lacking in a lot of kind. We're, we're lacking in kindness. And I think there are a couple reasons for this. Kindness is sometimes harder than we think. Uh, we live in a competitive society. We are always trying to win at something. And when we're kind, we can see that as as being too soft, that if we're kind, we're going to be taken advantage of. People then back off and they're not kind. Kindness puts us in a vulnerable position because we can be rejected. For example, I, when my daughter started in school, this was maybe two, three years ago, but this story stuck out at me. She was out on the playground and she went up to, to some other girl and said, you know, uh, can we be friends? And the other girl was like, no. I don't really want to be friends. And that was like, I heard this story and I was like heartbroken because now not only, I mean, all kids go through difficult experiences, but I was thinking to myself, now my daughter is so much less likely to ever go up and try to be friends with somebody again, because of this negative experience. No one wants to be rejected. No one wants to go up to someone and try to be friends. And then that person to say no. And now she had this experience. So I imagine she will hesitate seriously before going up to another kid and, and, trying to be friends. Uh, And so kindness exposes us to rejection and vulnerability. So we're less likely to do it. And so for that reason, we are not nearly as kind as we could be. We could be, I mean, just think of the opportunities we have for kindness that we simply don't do out of complacency, out of a fear of putting ourselves out there. But the problem is, or the truth is, is that kindness makes us happier. Study after study after study says that if you want something that gives you both a short-term boost in happiness and a long-lasting boost in happiness, do something kind for another person. It sounds like cliche-ish wisdom, but it's true. And and, and, and Martin Seligman has several studies approving that. So to me, it's, it's something I'm always trying to do more of. 
So you unpack in this chapter some of the Hebrew uh, derivatives of the word kindness, and I'm particularly, as a Christian, drawn to this idea of rahamin that is often translated as mercy, and mercy and kindness go together, but I've heard this, what I now think is a heretical or inaccurate teaching from Christians, that grace is something given that you don't deserve, and that mercy is something that's withheld that you do deserve. And that, that may be true in a courtroom, but this idea of rahamin or mercy is more of a womb, this this uh, container that holds you and nourishes you and nurtures you and not just a taking away of a spanking. That's right. I mean, that's exactly right. The word rachamim comes from the Hebrew word, the root rechem, which means womb, literally womb, a mother's womb. And so it is, it's, it's, it's a sense of, of nurturing, of love, uh, of, 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 in a way, I think grace is a pretty close translation of it. You know, there, there's a Jewish teaching that says, you know, the, essentially, if you read the Bible carefully, there are two creation stories. There's the creation story where human beings are created on the sixth day, Genesis 1, and there's the creation story where human beings are created on the first day. And and the different names of God are used in each. One is yod heh vav uh, Yahweh, and the other is Elohim. And the ancient rabbis said, one version of creation story is the aspect of God's justice, that that's the God that says you have to do this. If you don't do this, you're going to be punished. And then the second creation story is God's mercy. That, that name of God symbolizes God's mercy, God's forgiveness. And if we didn't – if we only had God's justice, then the world would be such a cynical place, right? I mean can you imagine if you know your wife or friend held – Every single or husband or, you know, held every single thing you ever did wrong was held against you forever. So if we live in, in a world of strict justice, it would be miserable. But if we lived in a world only of mercy, then we'd have no order. Then there would be no laws. So God had to create the world with both justice and mercy. Those, those are part of those are built into creation. So we need that. And so I actually think grace is probably a closer translation. Yeah, and you actually say that uh, the idea of mercy has its origins in the mother-child, the mother-infant bond. Uh, say more about that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think just in the in the word itself, rechem, uh, a womb, and that there's a. I mean, I think you know, you're a psychotherapist. My dad's a psychiatrist. There's a lot of our way of looking at the world that comes from childhood, and there's no closer bond than the mother-child bond early in life. And so I think a lot of our ways of looking at the world come from that experience. And so a notion of unconditional love, of mercy and forgiveness, you know, we, we, you know, little children do awful things sometimes, um, but we forgive them. We, 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 because we love them and we understand that that's part of the process of life. So I think this idea of mercy and grace is, is understanding that, we will make serious mistakes in life, and um, we need we, we need forgiveness, and we need to forgive others. Now, forgiveness, especially when you're adults, when you're responsible for your actions, there has to be some sort of reconciliation. There has to be remorse and so forth. But the the idea of of, of grace and, and of forgiveness is is something that's built into the order of creation, and, and something that we should embrace. Now, I'm using the word should, but uh, I'm using that in the sense of it will make us happier in the long run. Right, right. This makes us happier in the long run. That's And, and so does forgiveness. Uh, so yes, as you said earlier, these chapters are certainly connected. Well, it's interesting. Uh, St. Paul in the letter to the Romans says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not the fear of wrath or escaping doom or the flames of hell, uh, that there's actually something about kindness that's compelling, that makes us want to then be kind. Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, I think that's that's in and out. Hopefully, that's what leads yes. to the, the kindness. You know, I, I sometimes it is fear. Uh, you know, but hopefully, we know that we are accepted as we are, and that that kindness invites us back in. You know, that that kindness leads us towards God and towards others. Yeah, yeah. The the key word there though is hopefully, right? <laughs> 
as is always the case. So your next chapter was keep learning. And this is one that somebody could easily divide into sacred and uh, secular. But you see, and Jews in general see learning as, you know, one of the highest forms of worship. Oh, yeah. Lifelong learning is essential to to growing as a person. I mean, God built us to grow. We're not static. We're always changing. Uh, I like to say we can't step in the same river once, right? Because it's already changed as we step in. So we're always changing and growing. And learning helps us grow in every way. It helps us grow closer to God. It helps us understand God's word better. And it ultimately helps us understand other people. I mean, one of the ways that we learn is just by reading, by traveling, by talking with, with people who are different from us. And that opens us up to, to different parts of the human experience. And I think it makes us happier. Not only – I think the reason it makes us happier is we're using more parts of our brain. We're using more parts of ourselves. And we're ultimately deepening relationships. I mean in any serious – in a marriage, in a friendship – you learn more about other people as you grow together. And as you learn more about the other person, you feel closer to them. I mean, some, sometimes it can draw people apart too. That's, but that's, that's, uh, I'm, I'm talking about learning in the context of commitment. Right. That we, when we are committed to another person or committed to faith, committed to God, the more we learn, the deeper that relationship becomes. And that's been a part of Judaism for a long time. So it's much more than just keep your head in a book. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I sometimes think education is wasted on the young. Sometimes. Now, that's kind of cynical, but I do. I think we don't really appreciate the power. You know, when, when we think about school, think about, oh, filling out forms and taking tests and, okay, you got you to gotta learn when you're young and sometimes you need to push kids to. But, man, to have the opportunity to learn all day, that's, that, I love that. And so I think that if we can carve out time to continue to learn and grow, we're happier human beings. Yeah, man, I've, I've so many times thought if I could go back and do school again, um, how I would do it differently. But uh, it's now that I have to press into that. I don't want to just go through these one by one, but this last one I want to ask you to comment on. And then I want to just kind of let you, whichever ones you're passionate about or feel like you want to comment on. But in the prayer, it uh, is to welcome the stranger, and you paraphrase that as inviting others into your life. And I just thought that was beautiful how you said that. Yeah, that that to me is a hard one sometimes for me personally because I'm so again to go back to my enneagram. I'm a three. I'm driven. I'm always trying to to do more, and I think I sometimes. Um, and focus more on the task than on the person. But I think when we can experience life with other people, it makes life better. It's deeper. Just traveling with another person. I mean, I, I've traveled by myself and I've traveled with others. And traveling with others is always better. And um, not that there's sometimes when it's nice to travel alone. I'm not saying it's – but there, when we experience life with other people – we see parts of, of, of an experience. We notice things we wouldn't have noticed before. We are – there was a great Jewish sage named Maimonides, and he said human beings are social animals. Some Now, some of us are extroverted. Some are introverted. But we all need connections with other people. That's what we're built for. And so I think inviting others into our life um, gives us a path of doing that. It gives us concrete ways of doing that. And, and – um, that's sort of built into Judaism. We're supposed to – there are certain Jewish prayers you can only say when 10 people are present. And so community is almost a requirement wow. of prayer. So I think that that just reminds us that, that we need other people in order to truly thrive. So which of the others – I, I want to end with forgiveness – uh, but which of the others do you just enjoy talking about or are favorites of yours within the prayer? I think one of them, especially as a rabbi, is, is uh, consoling the bereaved. That sometimes when a, loved, when, when a loved one dies, 
or, or when, when let's say, let's say a, a parent of a friend of ours dies uh, or, or the spouse of someone we know dies, we can sometimes feel a little bit awkward that, that they're in pain and we just kind of want to say, oh, you know, we don't, we don't really know what to do. But the truth is just showing up for another person. The, in a way, I call, people call it the ministry of presence. Just going there and sitting with somebody who's lost somebody, it, 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 it's so powerful. I mean I just, I just conducted a funeral yesterday and I'm going over to the house tonight uh, to, to be with the family. And they'll have lots of other people. We're just there. And that is something that Jews have done for a long time. It's something called Shiva. And you go to somebody's house and you don't expect to be entertained. You just simply go there in order to be with the mourner. And that too. Now, how does that make us happier? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, it deepens our relationship. When we're there for people in difficult times, they remember, they notice. Secondly, it reminds us that life is worth living. There are people when they lose a loved one who are in despair. Even if the person was old and, and, and was expected, death is this extraordinary mystery. So in many ways, religion accepts when it can help us deal with the deepest mysteries of life. And so when we're there for people who, who have lost somebody, we're, really we're, we're fulfilling part of our purpose as human beings. So to me, that, that is a very powerful one. Perhaps because I experience it so regularly doing funerals, but I, I see how it works and how it makes us happier. And it's also an act of kindness for the person who is mourning. And so many of these things, and this might contradict what I said earlier about, you know, that if uh, uh, someone is kind to us, that makes us want to be kind. Or I think I said that in the context of God's kindness. Um, it's so easy to not do these things. Uh, that that the the default setting is nah I'll just I'll just focus on what's easy or I'll do what benefits me but all of these things draw us up and out of ourselves. That's exactly it. it, it well, none of these things are really um, all of them are directed towards the outer community. In fact, that is a slight criticism of this book. Uh, not of this book, really. Book's perfect. Let me assure you. It, it's it's almost a it is a critique of this approach to happiness because there's very little in this prayer that's about self-care it's all outer directed and that that's perhaps because these were rabbis from 2000 years ago the idea of the individual separate from the community did not exist the individual is a notion uh, that's really 17th modern idea. There's nothing in here. Like I, I like to journal. I like to write things down and you know, I think that makes me happier. But that isn't part of this happiness prayer. So this isn't something where I say you do these 10 things and that's all you have to do and you're going to be happy for the rest of your life. No, this isn't totally 100 percent complete. And so I do think that sometimes we do need to take care for ourselves. But these practices – but I almost think in today's society, it's so focused on the self that we need something to push us out of ourselves a yes. little bit. And that's why this prayer is important in this day and age. Yeah, there is a uh, pathological form of focusing on yourself, and there's a, a very healthy way that can make us thrive and flourish. And I, I loved, for me, in the season that I encountered this book, it helped lift me kind of up and take my eyes off myself. Yes, yes. That, it, it, I think as human beings we need to be pushed out of ourselves sometimes. And I think that it's so easy today in this world to, to, to fall into ourselves. You know, we, we have our phones. Uh, we, we, we don't even have to socialize very much if we don't want to. We don't have to talk to people that are next to us because we can just pick up our phone and read our email or, you know, read an article. And so sometimes we need a little push to get outside of ourselves. So as a rabbi who cares for the people in your congregation and when there are people that are struggling with depression or mood disorders or, or bona fide mental illness, how do you approach them? Because on the one hand, you hold these as core values and, you know, you are not saying, hey, just just do these things and you'll never be depressed. Um, but how do you come alongside people in a proactive way when they're hurting, especially with the presence of pain or suffering? Well, I'm always very clear that I'm not a licensed therapist or psychologist. And so I refer people a lot to 
two psychologists and therapists that I know, uh, especially if, you know, I may, if somebody needs, let's say marriage counseling, maybe I'll sit down with them for one session. But I know that unless it's, you know, something dealing with the death of a, of a parent where I can at least provide some kind of experience about mourning and so forth, usually I refer to somebody else. Uh, but I see my role more about helping people recover a sense of meaning. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to solve depression or solve OCD or, or you know, deal with, with deeper issues in a marriage. But I can help people see that their lives are not that there's more to life than in just themselves, that there's a deeper purpose, that, that, that we're here for a reason. And that to me is in some ways I'm, I'm just a defender of that idea. And I can help remind people of that idea. And I'm there for them. So uh, I think it's dangerous sometimes if, if as a pastor or rabbi we try to do too much uh, because there are, you know, there are so many different deeper issues uh, that 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 can be addressed, and and there are issues that can be addressed with with medicine and drugs and things like that. I mean, not, not drugs as a negative, as in illegal drugs. I'm talking drugs, regular uh, drugs. And so I'm not qualified for that, but I do believe that that I'm a, a defender of of the idea that life has purpose and meaning, and sometimes we need someone to remind us of that. So let's close out with the idea of forgiveness, because this is an issue that is, I think, so misunderstood in terms of what it is or is not. And I'm sure that apart from this prayer that you deal with that as well from a uh, a rabbinic caregiving perspective. So um, talk about forgiveness, the importance of it, and how it can lead to happiness, because it can sometimes, maybe for Christians who forgiveness through uh, Jesus' prayer of forgive us our sins as we forgive others, that it's assumed that it's normal. But I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, Every, everyone thinks uh, that forgiveness is a wonderful idea until they have something to forgive. <laughs> so what is it about this? I think sometimes with forgiveness, we confuse it with condoning. We say, if I forgive that person, then I'm saying what they did was okay. I'm saying that they lied or they stole something from me or they hurt me, and if I forgive them, I'm saying I really don't care and that's okay. And that's not. Forgiveness isn't condoning. Forgiveness is moving on. It's not letting that person take up psychic space in our brain and our emotions. And so I, that's why I think forgiveness is like a, it's a relief. It's getting rid of a burden we're carrying around in our head. We're kicking that person out of our mind by forgiving them in a sense. And so I think sometimes we are, we hesitate to forgive because we see it as a form of condoning. And so that's one of the first things I try to tell people is you're not, you're not saying what that person did was okay. You're simply saying you're not going to let it um, shape your life. And forgiveness doesn't mean that, that there isn't punishment. I mean, if, you know, I, I tell the story in the book about the, that Malcolm Gladwell uh, shared about um, a family he knew. Uh, I'm forgetting the very strict uh, uh, Christian sect. Um, Mennonite. I think he's Mennonite. Mennonite. Yeah. Yeah. And they forgave somebody who murdered their daughter, which was, uh, you know, almost it's very hard to even imagine that. That didn't mean they didn't want that person to go to jail, which he did. You know, they weren't saying because I forgive you, you're free to go on, you know, and, and, and live like a free person and you're, you know, you're a hero. No, that person went to jail. That person paid for their for their crime. But the parents said, we're not going to let that person who committed this awful act, we're not going to let that person loom in our lives as this presence anymore. And I found that I just found that enormously powerful. Uh, uh, so. I, I think that's what forgiveness requires in some way. It's a gift we give to ourselves, and it's not easy. It's very painful. But sometimes we need – that's where a rabbi or therapist or pastor can be an outside voice to help us see that truth, uh, to, to see how if we forgive, we'll ultimately be happier. It sounds too good to be true that yeah. if we if – we just forgive or if we just welcome people into our lives or if we 
uh, just have lifelong learning, but there's something about the sum of all of these where when I'm looking at them on paper now and as I read the book, it's like, yeah, that just makes sense. Um, yeah. And so you, you said uh, that happiness is not the destination, it's the path. Mm. As we wrap up, comment about that path. I think you just hit the nail on the head that it's these cumulative actions. And this all goes back to something that may sound superficial, but I, the, the superficial truth is people who are religious, who, who, who have a religious affiliation, belong to a church or synagogue, they are happier. Survey after survey, Gallup survey said people who are part of a religious community are happier than people who are not. Why is that? I believe it's because they try to do the things that are in this prayer. Not all religious people do, but that when the, that religion calls upon us to get outside of ourselves and these actions bring us outside of ourselves and they slowly, cumulatively over time lead us to live a life well lived. That sounds kind of circular, but they, they, they guide us in, in what is truly a meaningful life. What I, as a person of faith, would say God created us for. But you don't have to be a person of faith to to do these things. You can be a secular person and say I'm doing these things because they make us happier. They make me happier. But I believe that we, that we're, we're created to give, to comfort the bereaved, to build community, to express gratitude, to forgive. I think that's part of our nature. And these teachings – and maybe not part of our nature, but if we do them, we become the kind of person we can be, that we are created to be. And so there won't be a time – when I say it's not the destination, there's not a time when you say, OK, I've done this act a thousand times. Therefore, I'm now happy. That's not, that, that's not how it works. But over time, kind of like how a stone is smooth, you know, it, is smoothened over time, our, our life will feel happier over time as we pursue these actions. So we have been talking about your book, The Happiness Prayer, Ancient Jewish Wisdom for the Best Way to Live Today. This has been uh, just a great conversation. And after reading the book, it's an honor to talk with you. So Rabbi Evan Moffick, thank you. Thank you. What a joy and honor to speak with you as well. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.